a brain. Nice shirt. Who's your tailor? Quasimodo? Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And today's movie is one that I am especially interested to talk about for a myriad of reasons. Uh, It is the 1988 uh, animated movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I'm going to flat out say right at the start of the podcast here is easily one of the 20 biggest movies that has ever come out in my lifetime, yet nobody ever talks about it anymore. And I'm baffled why that is, because this movie was such a big deal, and it really still is if you watch it now, but... Again, nobody ever, ever talks about who framed Roger Rabbit anymore, and I want to know why. So, I'm going to bring on a guest here. Let's see. She's been on Staff Picks before. She's a big fan of this movie. She actually suggested this to me a long time ago. Said, why don't you do a Who Framed Roger Rabbit episode? And I'm like, that never crossed my mind, but that is the perfect movie to cover on Staff Picks just for, like I said, because it just basically dropped off the face of the earth, and nobody remembers what a big deal this was. So, uh, let's see, yeah, she's been on the show before, she, uh, is a burlesque dancer, and it was funny, because last time I had her on to talk about True Lies, which there is some burlesque dancing in that with Jamie Lee Curtis, and it never even crossed my mind that Jessica Rabbit in Who Framed Roger Rabbit is also a bit bit of a burlesque dancer, so it ties in perfectly. So, welcome back to the show, one of my favorite guests I've had on before, Christine Giver. Hey, Mario. I am happy to be back and talk about this movie. Um, it is a movie that, as we will get into, it's it's so ironic that I fell in love with this as a kid because it is not a kid's movie. Um, but I think maybe maybe in the 80s, we just didn't know better. And we were like, yeah, it's fine. Um, so I'm I'm really, really excited to talk about this one. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up right at the start because I was just watching it this morning just to take notes. And I realized... My God, this is not a kid's movie at all, is it? It, It's not. um, And in fact, if you, for those that have seen it a number of times or have kind of looked into um, some people that have taken a lot of time to look at certain things frame by frame, there is so much stuff in there that is like, whoa. I mean, probably way over any kid's head that watches it, (laughs) but still, there is a lot in there. And not only that, I guess I'll, I'll talk about this elephant in the room right off the bat. This movie apparently terrified every little kid who saw it in 1988 because of that dip scene. Yes, um, including me. I I mean, I I won't lie. The dip uh, terrified me. But, you know, it's scary, I'm sure, for kids. Now it's just like, I I, I don't know. It's kind of it's funny, but it's still it's still scary in a way, I think. (laughs) Well, isn't that the Disney way? Because like you go to Disneyland and you go on that Peter Pan or Snow White ride. And those are fun, but they're also quite terrifying for the wrong type of kids. So that is kind of the Disney way. I think so. I really do think so. Um, so, yeah, this is this goes right along with that. And there's plenty of, um, you know, another you know, fun thing and that there's Disney in this movie blended in with all sorts of cartoon characters. I mean, there's Warner Brothers, everything. It's just something you wouldn't expect to see all in one movie. Okay, we'll kind of talk about the legacy of Who Framed Roger Rabbit in a second, but I want to get your history of this movie, because I know you're a little younger than me, so you must have been, I was 14 when this came out, you must have been quite young. Like, what is your history with Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yes, so I was 
seven years old when this movie came out, and I don't think that I saw it right when it came out, but I would say I was probably somewhere between eight and ten years old when I did see it on on VHS back in the day, Um, and I mean, I just, I thought it was amazing. Um, I mean, I've, I've always been a fan of cartoons and, and certainly this is not the only film to ever have tried to blend cartoon and live action. It's been done other times, but I think that this was the most successful blend of that. And there were some characters like, for example, Jessica Rabbit, who, you know, stuck with me from, from that time until growing up. And then when I did get into burlesque, I was like, Hey, th- I'm I'm going to be Jessica Rabbit. This is what I wanted my whole life and this is what I'm going to do. So, it's just uh so interesting that they were able to do that. Please tell me that's your stage name. It is not. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I I wish it was, but I'm sure somebody has uh tried some version of that like Jessica Rabbit or something. <laughs> I had no idea that burlesque names were that close to roller derby names. Yes, they are very, very similar. In fact, my first choice for a burlesque name was already taken by someone in roller derby. So Wow. The things you guys learn listening to staff picks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I- I'm glad you pointed out this was not the first meld of live action and animation, because I think a lot of people kind of think of it that way. Like, oh, that was that one where they finally did live action and animated and, and made it into one movie. But no, that's absolutely not the truth at all. There was what, Pete's Dragon? There was uh, Mary Poppins. That was a big one. Yes, yes, for sure. I mean, that it was done before that, and it had been done after that. Like, Cool World is another example where the two were blended. So, um, I mean, it's it's been done, but I just... I think Roger Rabbit is such a classic in the way that it was done and and the the animated characters that they involved in the movie, even though they weren't like the focus of the movie. Yeah, and that's very well said. In fact, I read I just read a quote recently that Tom Hanks, you know, the most beloved actor of his era, recently called Who Framed Roger Rabbit the most complicated movie ever made. Wow. Yeah, so there you go. So, yeah, this was a huge technical accomplishment. This movie, I mean, broke down so many doors and what you could do with animation and movies. I know it's been called one of the great uh, examples of the golden age of animation in Hollywood. In fact, I just read another piece of trivia. This was the single most expensive movie of the 1980s. It was, and it did not get dethroned. Well, it was the most expensive movie of all time um, until finally, I think one of the Terminator movies in 1991 finally, you know, over, over, you know, went over that. So, okay. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed out the Terminator because this is, again, this is the thing I want to get across to people. Like you might remember Roger Rabbit as a cute little kids movie or a fun Disney movie. But again, as I said at the start, this is one of the 20 biggest movies of my lifetime. Like, All these movies that came out that were huge special effects showcases, and I'm talking like Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, Titanic, The Matrix, Avatar, like all the biggies that were the biggest and boldest at the time. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was absolutely the biggest special effects movie ever when it came out. Now, that's the thing that I think has really been lost and why I'm shocked that nobody ever talks about it anymore. Yeah, I mean, I I really think the same thing, and I'm not sure if it's just that you know, these days people aren't as nostalgic for that type of film. Um, You know, I I don't really know. It was just, I loved it. And obviously I know a lot of other people love it, but um, I'm with you that I don't know why it's not more talked about. 
Yeah, and I will I will raise my hand here and say I am as guilty as anybody. When Christine suggested we do this on staff picks, I thought back to the last time I'd watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I swear it was about 1990. <laughs> so I'm as guilty as anybody that I love this movie. It's the most amazing thing ever that when it first came out, it was like this big Jurassic Park type blockbuster, and I haven't watched it in 31 years, even though I own it. It's just one of those things. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that I watch, you know, there's movies that I've certainly watched more often than this one, but it's definitely, for me, it's in my top 10 favorite movies of all time, um, and, you know, I do like to go back to it every now and again. Okay, let's talk about a little trivia here. So this movie, uh, based on a book, I've never read the book, I assume you've never read the Roger Rabbit book? I have not. Yeah, okay, yeah. There was some novel, 1981, Disney bought the rights. It's about a cartoon rabbit and a human investigator. It's called something like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I wish I knew. I wrote that down, but I didn't. But Disney bought the rights, but they just did not have the technology to make it for seven years. And in the interim, they went through a whole list of people they wanted to star in this movie, and Bob Hoskins was not their first choice. Did you hear about this? Yes, he absolutely, he was not even their second or third choice. <laughs> okay, so who are some other names that were floated as the, who they wanted to be the star of this movie? Um, so I know that the person that they most wanted to be the star was um, Harrison Ford. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was too expensive for them, um, which understandable because, you know, Star Wars had, had not been too long before that. It was right around that time. Um, and so they didn't get him. And I know that they were also interested in um, Bill Murray, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, who, who apparently didn't get the message and was, was very distraught afterwards that he uh, was not aware that they were interested in him for that part. Yeah, let me jump, jump in here and say that Harrison Ford, I don't think, would have been great in this because he doesn't have the right energy, I don't think. Now, Bill Murray, that's a whole different thing. I could totally see Bill Murray in this. And if people don't know, Bill Murray is very notorious for being impossible to reach. He has no agent. He has no phone. If you want to offer him a role, you have to basically, like, call this voicemail somewhere in Chicago. And he checks messages maybe twice a year. And if he wants the role, he'll get back to you. So this is one that slipped past him, and he was he was very upset later he didn't get it. Yes, um, for sure. And, I mean, kind of keeping with the, the Saturday Night Live theme, I mean, they were looking at Chevy Chase. They were looking at Eddie Murphy. Um, and, you know, all of these, I think, are, are actors that could have done a good job. But, I mean, really, when it comes down to it, I, I think that the role was cast well <laughs> yeah no i agree bob hoskins he was not really a big name actor at the time i think he was british if i recall right i think so yeah so he has an accent in the movie that's not his real accent but yeah he's just a guy in a lot of crime dramas they thought he'd be perfect but i do know eddie murphy has gone on record saying this is one of the biggest regrets of his career he turned down who framed roger rabbit because he didn't really get the concept Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't blame him. I would also, you know, in retrospect, look back and be like, why? Why didn't I do that? <laughs> but it's crazy. Like this movie already made 300 something million dollars. They instantly created a whole new section of Disneyland based on this movie, which is still there. Toontown is still there. But can you imagine Eddie Murphy's star power on top of that? This would have been like the biggest movie of all time. 
It, it, it very well could have been. I think it would have been a very different movie um, had he been cast. Um, but yeah, I mean, with with the star power, you know, certainly that makes a difference. And maybe that's part of the the loss of appeal is that people just aren't like they're like, you know, Bob Hoskins, like whatever. But he did a phenomenal job with with the acting in the movie. Yeah. And let's not gloss over that. because something, something I specifically wanted to talk about is that. I have seen the argument made. Now, Bob Hoskins did not win any awards for this. Like, uh, he didn't, like, no one to this day remembers him as being, like, a big part of Who Framed Roger Rabbit is why it was such a big deal. But I have seen the argument, and I, I think this is a good argument, that this may be the most impressive acting performance anybody has ever pulled off in a movie. Because Bob Hoskins literally acts with nobody the entire movie. It's all him and green screen and blue screen and puppets. And when you see it on screen, it looks so natural. You don't even realize how hard that must have been. Right. I was actually thinking that when I was watching it earlier today as well. Um, because, I mean, I don't think, you know, in the past when I've watched it so much that I've considered that fact. But if you're acting to nothing, I mean, it's it's a lot harder to get that same, you know, level of performance and react the same way when you're not playing off of another person. So it's really phenomenal what he was able to achieve. Yeah. And I, I will flat out say when I rewatched it the last two times, I pulled this movie out of the dustbin and watched it twice for to in preparation for the show. And all I was really watching was Bob Hoskins. I was like, I'm just paying attention to, wow, that shot must have been tough. Or, wow, I can't believe that one seems so natural. That must have been really hard. So if you watch this movie again, just watch him and imagine how tough it was uh, to the to the extent that I think I read somewhere that after he did this movie, it was so hard and so much work. He didn't act again for over a year because he needed some time off. Oh, wow. I, I had not seen that, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised because that would have been a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's out there doing double duty in this movie. Just watch it and pay attention to that. Okay. Uh, one other thing. So again, this isn't really a kid's movie. I was kind of shocked at how adult it was when I was watching earlier today. Some of the stuff in there, especially one of baby Herman's lines in particular that I cannot believe is in a Disney kids movie about how he's 50 year old and has a three year old's dick. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that's, that's a little bit. Um, I, I think, I think kids these days would, that probably wouldn't fly over their heads. Yeah. And to be fair, he doesn't use the word dick. He says dinkus, but that's a very edgy line for a Disney movie. That's the one that jumped out at me. It's like, wow, I was not shocked when I saw that this was a PG rated movie. And I read some uh, interview with some director or producer who said, yeah, that movie really should have been PG 13. We got lucky with a PG. Yeah, I, I would say that they did. I mean, if that movie were made today in the same type of way, I, I don't think that it would have been quite quite that uh, but I, honestly i think that if that movie were made today they would be better off just ratcheting you know ratcheting it up and going for an r rating <laughs> oh yeah that's a good point yeah so this is right there in the middle ground when they're trying to the best of both worlds right okay okay so yeah there's lots of again i'm not going to be able to do this movie justice i don't know much about the history of cartoons and movies i don't know animation there are so many in jokes in this movie that i'm not even going to try to get into them did, did you like how how detailed are your notes on the cartoon jokes in this movie 
Um, I don't think I have a lot of notes about the cartoon jokes. I know I was noticing a lot of that as I was rewatching it um, today, uh, but I didn't make any specific notes about those. Okay, good. So we'll be on the same page. So we're not going to yes. get, yeah, we're not going to get too specific into the history of cartoons. But again, if you know the history of the cart of cartoons, this movie is like a gold mine. There's so much going on. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, and the last thing I wanted to say is the director of this movie. So. When they when Disney bought the rights to this movie in 1981, they wanted the director Robert Zemeckis to direct it, and he was totally on board. But the problem was his first two movies flopped. Now I don't know if you know his movies. Uh, one is called I Want to Hold Your Hand, and one is called Used Cars. Have you seen either of those? I have not seen either of those. Okay, Used Cars, one of my favorite comedies of the 80s, but it's virtually unknown, and it was a huge flop. So they put the movie on hold because all his movies flopped, and they're like, we don't trust you with Roger Rabbit. This is a huge Disney property. We're not giving it to just somebody, to nobody. But then he made Back to the Future and Romancing the Stone, and that changed their minds immensely. So then he got the job. Right. I would imagine so. I mean, Back to the Future was huge. Uh, you know, that, that would be like another one that I'd be like, oh, I would... You know, that's a great movie to talk about, but I think that that one um, is, is, has held up uh, over the test of time, like a little bit better than Roger Rabbit. Yeah, I've always said that's this is a sentence I always use that I always call Back to the Future nature's perfect movie. But I don't think anybody could find a flaw in that movie anywhere. I would agree. It's a pretty, pretty outstanding movie. I don't think that I would change anything that I could think of. <laughs> yeah. But the tie in there is what I'm getting at is that Robert Zemeckis had done Back to the Future. He liked working with Christopher Lloyd. And so that's how he got him to be in this movie as the judge. So that's the tie in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, the, you know, interesting fact about that, when, as we were talking about casting, um, he was also not the first choice for Judge Doom. Oh, yeah. Yeah, get into that. So who were the – I know there was one actor who they said was too terrifying and one they said who wasn't terrifying enough. Do you remember who those two were? Um, yes. So it could have been a very different movie with either of those choices. Um, their first choice was actually Tim Curry, mm -hmm. um, which I don't know if anybody wants to try and imagine Pennywise as Judge Doom. <laughs> um, I don't, but that that's that's what I'm picturing. Um, so, yeah, he was he was too terrifying. And uh, they were considering John Cleese, who they said would not be terrifying enough. Yes. Yeah, John Cleese was not terrifying enough. Tim Curry was too terrifying. And then, just like in uh, Goldilocks and the, and the Three Bears, Christopher Lloyd was just right. Yes, he, he was. Um, and I had also read that his secret to kind of hitting that good, terrifying medium was that he does not blink once the entire time that he is on screen. <laughs> well, to be fair, he also has sunglasses on most of the movie. But yeah, I read True. that as well. <laughs> Yeah, if, if he has sunglasses on, you can you know you can't tell. But yeah, I mean, I think that was something that he specifically worked on to like try and make himself really scary. One of the true underrated villains of children's movies of all time, the judge in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, who again I'm not kidding, messed up so many kids of that era because he's just creepy. Yes, he is extremely creepy um, still today. But but yeah, for sure. You know what's funny is I was. Uh, I was watching this movie in preparation, and my daughter, my daughter's 21, and she walked by, and she's like, what are you watching? I'm like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I'm like, have you seen that? And she's like, yeah, I saw it as a kid once. It scared me when they killed that shoe in the dip. So, like, <laughs> she just, off the top of her head, she just remembered that scene was scary. 
It was. Um, yeah. And it's, it's so funny that that sticks with people, you know, so, so long after. <laughs> okay. We'll get into the plot of the movie here in a second, but there's one more name I wanted to throw out here that, uh, that was bantered about at the time. There was one big comic actor in the eighties. They wanted him in this movie somehow, but they said, we don't know if we want him as Eddie Valiant, the, uh, private detective or, or as the judge, he's either the good guy or the bad guy. And that was Robin Williams. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I could see why they would have thought that. I, I mean, I think that I don't know that he really has the right energy for either of those parts. Um, but I could understand because, I mean, back then I would have wanted Robin Williams in any film that I was making. Yeah. I, I see. I personally I've been thinking about this all day. I personally would have rather have him as the villain just because I love Robin Williams in dramas more than comedies. I would have loved to see him go dark as the judge. It could have been very interesting, that is for sure. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go through the plot here. And again, this movie has a very simple plot. This might be a fairly quick podcast, but are you ready to kind of delve into the world of Roger Rabbit? Sure, absolutely. Okay, so I will set the tone here that this movie exists in 1947 Hollywood. It's very old-timey, kind of film noir. I kind of think that's probably why I don't watch it that much, because that's not really my genre, that old-timey stuff. But it's a world where it's old-timey old, old -timey Hollywood, there's humans and there's cartoons, and they coexist. Like, they live with each other in their own sections of town, but they work together in the movie world. So it's basically, think of all these old animated movies, but those those weren't animated. Those were actual cartoon characters living and breathing that just starred in the movies. That's the premise. It's a, am I Am I accurate there? Yes, that would be a good assessment of what this film's setting is. Okay, so we start with, uh, it opens with a cartoon. Lead us through the Baby Herman cartoon at the start. So the Baby Herman cartoon at the start, and and I mean, I, I think that if you didn't know what the film was going into it, you know, it would be just like any Tom and Jerry cartoon or anything, you know, that you would see back at that time where... There's this baby, and Roger Rabbit is supposed to be watching the baby. And, you know, of course, the baby tries to get into trouble. I think he was wanting a cookie, and Roger is trying to stop him from hurting himself. And Roger ends up getting hurt in a lot of terrible ways. <laughs> yeah, although there is one rule in this universe, Christine, and that is tunes cannot be hurt, right? Yes. I mean, they... Obviously, it appear to be getting hurt, but they do not actually feel pain. Yes. They're the stunt doubles of the movie world in this movie in 1947. You love having tunes in your movies because you can do anything to them. You can drop a refrigerator right around their head. You can impale them with knives, and they won't get hurt, so they're wonderful. Yes, that that is very true, um, even though it's it's kind of ironic in that way, you know, because Roger's obviously getting hurt a lot, and he's so scared for the safety of this baby who would probably also be fine um, <laughs> if something happened to him. But, you know, that's 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 the premise that they're going with. You're breaking the wall. You're ruining the image. Stop. Breaking the wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, so there's a huge cartoon at the start. It's very much like an old Looney Tunes cartoon, and it's uh, really kind of funny. But then in the middle of the cartoon, Roger Rabbit blows a line. No, he doesn't blow a line. He gets a refrigerator on his head, and he's supposed to be seeing stars, but instead he sees birds. And the director yells, cut! And when he yells, cut, all of a sudden we get one of the most amazing scenes anybody would have seen in a movie in 1988. This is where the, the cartoon actors have to interact with the human actors. 
Right. And that's kind of where, you know, I think honestly, even if you, you know, do know what the movie is going into it in that moment, it's just like this shock of, oh, wow, this isn't a normal cartoon. This is they're they're shooting a cartoon and there's actual real people there interacting with the uh, the the cast members, including, you know, then baby Herman starts to speak in this very gruff tone, you know, that you would not expect to hear from a baby and is, is not uh, the, the nicest baby. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's hard to describe this shot to people who have not seen it. It's just baby Herman storming off the set, Roger rabbit pleading for a second chance with a live action director. And they're walking through a movie studio as these conversations are going on. There's half animated characters in the background, half real characters and again, you could watch this scene. It's about four minutes long, and you could watch it 50 times and probably catch something different every time because there's so many little background details going on. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I know even watching it today, I, I caught a couple of things. Well, in particular, I think that's the scene that there's um, – I, I had read – these some of these people who have gone through uh, the movie in fine detail um, that I think that is uh, one of the more vulgar adult things in the movie um, that baby Herman walks underneath a woman's dress mm-hmm. and then he's like licking his fingers afterwards. And, you know, I, I never noticed that when I was a kid, but I read about it and I watched and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay, let, let's talk about this, because this was kind of a market back in the day that there's special animations in this movie that the people put in as kind of jokes, knowing that they would happen too fast for the regular viewer to catch them. But people would to get this movie on Laserdisc, another form of media that does not exist today, and they'd frame, they'd frame step it step by step for each frame, and you could catch little stuff, and this movie was notorious for it. And I think in that scene, if I recall, yeah, Baby Herman, again, this little you know, one foot tall baby who's an adult in a baby's body. He walks under a woman's dress. He takes his middle finger. He extends it straight up her dress as she, he walks by. And then as he's walking out from under her dress, he's licking his finger. Yes. Yeah. Which, which is, I, I mean, I, I, if they made that uh, more obvious then I'm not sure they would have gotten away with a PG rating. <laughs> yeah. So that's another fun thing about this movie. I do remember that at the time that, you know, the little mermaid was famous for having like a penis on the cover art, but who Framed Roger Rabbit went to a whole nother level, all the little dirty animations that are hidden in it. Yes, there there is a lot of that. <laughs> okay, so here we have this movie studio. It's all chaos. Roger Rabbit's pleading with the director to give him another chance. I'm sorry I blew the line. And now we meet the main star of this movie, who is a private detective named Eddie Valiant, played by Bob Hoskins, and kind of explained who Eddie Valiant is. Um, yeah, so he's he's a detective. I mean, he seems like he's, you know, kind of down on his luck. Business doesn't seem very good. Um, I don't know if, you know, giving away that aspect of it. But in the beginning, you just see that he hates tunes. Um, you know, he, he really doesn't seem to want to be around them. He doesn't want to have to go into Toontown. Um, and you find out very shortly thereafter that a lot of that has to do with the fact that his brother was killed by a tune. Terrible. Yeah, his brother murdered by a tune. Although, in keeping with the cartoon universe, how was his brother killed by a tune? Um, a piano was dropped on his head. <laughs> now, that's funny. I, I appreciate that. that he, his brother died a tune death, a tune 
We, we to, to this day still an uncaught tune killed his brother. But yeah, Eddie hates being here in in among the cartoons. He doesn't like tunes in general. He finds them frivolous and stupid, and he just hates the fact that he's being hired for a job. But again, like Christine said, he's a down on his luck private eye. He's being hired by the director or the 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 owner of the studio, Maroon Studios. Now, what is his mission? Why is he being hired here? Um, so he's being hired because um. Roger is, you know, having some poor performance and basically RK Maroon hires him to investigate Roger's wife, Jessica Rabbit, um, to see, you know, what her side romantic involvements might be. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good. So Roger Rabbit has a wife, Jessica. She is cheating on him. That's the rumor. And it's distracting Roger Rabbit's performance. He's distracted. Like, you can't hurt a tune, but you can hurt his feelings. And that's the problem. So they've hired this private detective to go find out what Jessica's up to, take some pictures, get some dirt on her. We'll show Roger once and for all what his wife's up to, and maybe he'll be more focused. Yes, at least that's what they think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although we get a, a shot here where where Eddie, the detective, goes back to a bar. He's a known drunk and all the people are making fun of him because he's working for a cartoon studio and he's very upset about it. He screams at one guy, I don't work for tunes, and he beats some guy up. So we know Eddie's a tough guy. He's very serious and he hates this mission more than anything. But again, it's a hundred bucks and he needs a hundred dollars. Yeah, I, I mean, and and it seemed, you know, obviously it was a lot. That was a, quite a lot of money back then. Um, so he was very excited about this amount of money. And R.K. Maroon seemed hesitant to to pay that much at first, but he's like, oh, this is this is a terrible job. So um, he ended up uh, doing that. And I'll be honest, right here in the podcast, I don't really care about the detective part of this movie. And I start to zone out. And and I, my wife said the same thing. She's like, you know. That's one of those movies I don't watch very much because I don't really care about the detective subplot, like all the subterfuge and who's screwing Roger Rabbit over. Like, it's really about the effects and the characters. Now, would you agree with that? Um, I think so. I mean, like, you, there has to be some sort of plot to kind of carry the movie along. And I think it's more the, the Judge Doom aspect that I find mm -hmm. more interesting. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely more just the, the experience and the animation and things like that. Yeah, so we'll, we're going to yada yada over some of the details of the, the detective work itself to get to the fun stuff. So with that being said, now Eddie's going to go to the club and he's going to meet Jessica Rabbit, who he assumes is a rabbit like Roger. It turns out that is not the case. Now, I'll leave it up to you because I know you uh, are living this world. <laughs> who is Jessica Rabbit? So Jessica Rabbit is a, a human-looking cartoon, um, very, very voluptuous, you know, and all of that. And, I, I mean, I'll tell you, like, the first time that I ever saw the movie, that, you know, not really knowing what to expect and seeing that scene and that very first, like, line that she sings and she comes out from behind the curtain. And I, I, I'm pretty sure that that was the moment in my life where I was like, Yep, I'm bisexual. So. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. So Jessica, I was going to say, I even have written in my notes, Jessica Rabbit was the first cartoon to give lots of guys a boner. So it works on both ends. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I like no lie. They made they made that character just, I think, exactly what they were intending to make that character be. <laughs> we have not described her dimensions yet. Is there any way we could possibly do that and do it justice? Um, I mean, let's just say, uh, 
you know, an hourglass figure to the max, very, uh, a lot up top and a lot on the backside and pretty, pretty slim everywhere else. Yeah. Sir Mix-a-Lot would love her. Yeah. Sir Mix-a-Lot would be a big fan. <laughs> She's got a motor in the back of her Honda. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. Um, so yeah, this, this whole, you know, performance that she does. And it's just very interesting to see the interplay because, you know, Eddie Valiant really isn't there expecting to see what he saw. And he's sitting right there next to Marvin Acme, who that, you know, ties into more of the the plot there that obviously he's there to see Jessica Rabbit. Um, And after, as she performs the end of this song, she focuses completely on Eddie and he just doesn't know what to do. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. uh, So, yeah, so Eddie's initial response to seeing this beautiful hourglass supermodel is he's like, oh, my God, Roger Rabbit is married to that. There's no way. And he cannot believe it. But there's some other fun stuff in the scene that I have to point out. So first off, yeah, Jessica Rabbit is, to use a crude term, a walking wet dream, basically. And they, they did that on purpose. And in fact, I read somewhere the, the uh, animators were like, you know what? Let's go all the way with it. Not only is she wearing a low cut dra- dress, the skimpiest dress possible. She's curvy as all hell. But they're like, you know, when most women walk, their breasts bounce down. But with Jessica Rabbit, they decided to make her breasts bounce up just because they thought, you know, why the hell not? Let's make her bounce up. Yeah, I mean, you know, why not? They've already got all of the other stuff, so might as well do that, too. Yes. Again, the disclaimer, this is really not a kid's movie. No. (laughs) Okay. But there's some other fun things going on in the nightclub. We have a really famous sequence at the start where Donald Duck and Daffy Duck are doing a uh, piano-like recital. Yes, yes, that is also uh, a very well-known scene where they're they're battling each other through the pianos and trying to sabotage each other and and all of that and kind of get yanked off of the stage in the end. <laughs> it's like a rap battle, but how they would have done it back in the 40s on piano. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, that's one thing I wanted to point out that aside from Roger Rabbit and the other cartoons in this movie, there's all these famous historical cartoon figures and I don't know how the producers got the rights to every one of them, but like I, I, I could not even name half of the famous cartoons. You got Daffy Duck, Donald Duck, Betty Boop is in this scene. We'll have Yosemite Sam later, Bugs Bunny, Mickey Mouse, Porky Pig. Like I saw Marvin the Martian at one point. It's crazy how many rights they got to all these characters. Yes, and do you know um, that they actually wanted to do more? Like, there were more characters that they wanted to add in, but for whatever reason, couldn't get the rights to them. Wow, I I was most disappointed that He-Man and the Masters of the Universe were not in there somewhere. (laughs) I mean, that would have been fantastic (laughs) if they could have been, for sure. Um, Yeah, and that actually reminds me of one of those little cartoon... um, you know, things that you had mentioned, because I didn't make a note of it, but it was something that I noticed in the film that right leading up to before going in the club, um, they were playing the theme from uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's some Fantasia stuff back at the studio. The mops are there. Yep. All sorts of all sorts of movie in jokes from animated movies. Again, I'm not the right person to talk about them. I only maybe caught a fraction, but a cartoon purist would love this movie. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm speaking as if a cartoon purist wouldn't have seen this movie. <laughs> I, I'm sure that any cartoon cartoon purist would have seen it. Yeah. They're like, what, Roger what now? Never heard of it. <laughs> 
Okay, so uh, so yeah, we're in the club. We have the the penguin waiters. They're the same penguins from Mary Poppins. I caught that. Uh, oh, there's a, there's a joke here. I like this joke. There's, there's like three jokes I think are really clever in this movie where Eddie walks in and the cartoon penguin comes over to take his order. And Eddie's like, I'll have a uh, scotch on the rocks. And the waiter walks away and Eddie's like, and I mean ice. Because he knows full well the cartoon's going to take it literally. And sure enough, when he gets his drink later, it's a scotch with rocks in it. <laughs> yes, that that was another good one. And and that, what I think is so funny about that is the way that they demonstrate the tunes taking things literally when you would think that being tunes that it would be the opposite, but it's funny because it's literal. So <laughs> it, it's it's kind of weird like that. But again, that's exactly what the joke would have been in a cartoon back in the 50s. Someone would yes. argue, yeah, drink on the rocks and they put rocks in. It. That's exactly. So it's like a little tie into that kind of humor. For sure. Okay, so you mentioned one character in the bar here. He's fam- He's uh, important to this movie. Explain who Marvin Acme is. Um, so Marvin Acme, I believe he's the like the the owner of the Acme Corporation, and he also owns Toontown. Um, so basically, there, there's the suspicion that he is doing something with Jessica Rabbit. Yeah, this guy's a big shot. He owns Toontown, and uh, again, if you know. You know, the Roadrunner and Coyote cartoons, he always had those Acme products, which is just generic, cheap joke items. And so this guy apparently owns all these Acme Corporation items. It'll become famous. It'll become it'll become important later when you start seeing his warehouse. But anyway, the Acme guy loves Jessica Rabbit. And right off the bat, our private eye thinks this guy is having an affair with Jessica Rabbit. That's why he's here to watch her perform. And sure enough, after the performance, he follows him into the dressing room and he takes pictures. And, and what, what do we see with Marvin Acme and Jessica Rabbit? What are they doing together when they're not supposed to be? So it, it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of things that are implied before you actually see the photos. So all that you could hear is that they are in this dressing room and they are playing patty cake, but it sounds a lot like something else. So before you know more down the line, it, it's, it's, it's very much implied sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this, but this was a very uh, fitting for cartoons of that era that they'd use euphemisms like, ah, look at that dame. She's playing patty cake with that guy. Yes. So like, that's the thing. It's implied that Marvin Acme's uh, having sex with Jessica Rabbit. He's not. They're just playing patty cake. They're literally just tapping hands and playing patty cake. So again, kind of in the uh, spirit of this movie. But the detective takes pictures of them together and he says, that's it. Sure enough, Jessica Rabbit's playing patty cake with some strange man. And his his uh, mission is over. So he takes his pictures, goes back to the studio and says, yeah, Roger's wife is cheating on him. And this is where the movie's going to begin because Roger's going to find out and he's gonna, going to basically break down. Um, yes, I think that they were like, oh, well, you know, now Roger sees this and he'll get over it. But he is very upset and crying, you know, that 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 his wife was playing patty cake with Marvin Acme. And he says that he's going to make sure that they are happy again. Yeah. OK, although we do learn one thing in this scene, this is crucial. And I forgot how funny this is, where we learn that Roger has a particular quirk in his personality. He cannot handle his alcohol very well. Yes, if he drinks alcohol, then he will just absolutely, like, I mean, not literally explode, but, you know, like, jump up in the air and, like, let out a train whistle type of sound, and, yeah, he just can't handle it at all. He basically hulks up. He turns into the Incredible Hulk for about five seconds. Yes. 
Yeah, it's a funny scene here where they give him, they give poor Roger Rabbit a drink. He's just learned his wife has been cheating on him. They give him a drink to calm him down, and he basically turns into a, a 30 foot tall train whistle screaming and turning green, and he turns into a huge monster. Again, this will become important later in the movie. Just file that away for now. Yes. Okay, so yada yada. Uh, Roger Rabbit walks off in disgrace. His wife is cheating on him. He's so upset. We go back to Eddie's office, and you can just see Eddie's broken-down world where he used to solve crimes with his brothers. It's just a broken-down old office. Nothing happens here. It's just Eddie's got a depressing life. Roger's got a depressing life. And really, that's the end of Act 1 because Act 2 begins with a murder. Yes. Um, they discover that Marvin Acme was suddenly murdered, and a lot of the evidence seems to point to Roger being the one that did it. Okay, yeah, so this is the Acme guy that owns Toontown. The next morning he is found murdered, and sure enough, it looks like a Toon has murdered him because a safe has been dropped on his head, which is an especially graphic little image that I enjoy. And uh, Eddie Valiant, our private eye, gets called in because, you know, you were part of this case last night. You took these pictures. You gave them to Roger Rabbit. All of a sudden, the guy in the pictures is dead. We think Roger Rabbit killed him. So all of a sudden, Eddie's been pulled into a murder case, which he had no interest in being a part of. Yes. Um, he thought he was done. But, you know, since since he did take the pictures, then obviously it made sense that he would be the one involved in this investigation. Okay, yeah, so let's talk about this crime scene. So it's in a warehouse. I think it's the Acme Warehouse. And there's all these cartoon props hanging around, like cartoon uh, sledgehammers, cartoon holes where you – I always like the hole. They'd use this in the, these Acme cartoons back in the day where you, you'd throw this fake hole on the ground and you jump into it. That's how you'd escape stuff. They have those sitting around. What else, what else is in there? Um, that I don't remember which other, like off the top of my head in that scene. I know that there's quite a few things, but I don't remember what else is there. Well, the squeaky shoes, I guess those are important. Oh, yes. Yes. Because those come into play later. Okay. I will set you up. I will let you do the scene that gave every child nightmares for the next 10 years. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. So we're in the Acme warehouse and Eddie, our private eyes, trying to figure out who killed this Mr. Acme and if Roger really did indeed do it. And it's kind of weird because he, he wouldn't have pegged Roger Rabbit for a murderer. But as he's there, let's see. First, Jessica Rabbit shows up, slaps him, says, I hope you're happy for taking those pictures. Look what happened. But now we get a more nefarious person. Here comes the judge. This is Judge Doom, played by Christopher Lloyd, who is... Uh, what is he, the in charge of all justice for all tunes in, in Toontown? Um, I believe that that's what he is supposed to be in charge of. And his sidekicks. Talk about his five sidekicks. His sidekicks are weasels, um, and they all have their own little, like, looks and personalities. But, um, yeah, they, they're, they're almost like kind of weasel police. Yeah, exactly. He he said he used to have hyenas, but the hyenas all laughed themselves to death, so he went with weasels instead. So the weasels are his hit squad. They're called the Toon Patrol. <laughs> so the Toon Patrol and the judge are here to arrest Roger Rabbit because all, every evidence of this crime looks like Roger Rabbit killed Mr. Acme. And they come there, and they're just intimidating. Like, describe the judge to people for if they, maybe, maybe they haven't seen him before. Um, <laughs> well, the, the Judge Doom is, is kind of the stuff of nightmares. Um, he's, he's very just, like, calm, but in a very creepy way. And, you know, 
just has this stare and I, I mean like it's it's so hard to describe but just picture like the scariest creepy person you can think of and that's probably judge doom yeah and christopher lloyd's like six foot four he's massive and he just looms over everybody and he just keeps saying to everybody you know tunes must be made to respect the law like you do not mess with this guy and he's ready to murder roger rabbit on the spot for killing a human and this is where we get the dip scene which uh again this is a rough one this one really scared people i'm i was even kind of shocked how uh I don't even know what the right word. It's kind of horrific, but describe what dip is and what he does with it. So dip is the, I mean, it, it looks, it looks like a vat of acid, which I mean, it, it kind of is in a way, uh, but it's, it's meant to essentially kill tunes because since you can't normally hurt tunes, I mean, you can do whatever you want to them. Um, this is something that can actually kill tunes. And uh, like, the funny thing is that, what they actually made the dip out of in reality um, will destroy animation cells. <laughs> so they, they made it as real to life as possible. Yeah, he explains what's in the dip. He says it's a combination of turpentine, acetone, and benzene, which in real life, that is how you would erase animation cells. So it's kind of an inside joke. But it's this vat of this greenish smoking stuff. And he's going to give us a demonstration of what happens when you dip a cartoon into dip. And unluckily for us and every child watching this movie, apparently, he picks the cutest, most innocent little animated character to make an example out of. Yes. Um, he finds this poor little cartoon shoe that seems so sad and so scared and just, you know, picks it up and slowly lowers it down into the dip and it's just it's it's frightening <laughs> yeah again this is just a cartoon character being lowered into a vat of green stuff but like the shoe's eyes get all big and he screams and he slowly melts and you see the life being drained out of his eyes and i can see why that messed up a lot of little kids now I was 14 when I saw it. it. didn't really affect me. I'd seen more horrific stuff in like Friday the 13th movies, but like I can imagine for a little kid that was horrific. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I, I was probably nine or ten when I saw this movie, and I I don't even know if I knew what to to think because that probably was the most horrific thing that I'd seen in a movie up to that point. Yeah, this poor happy little jumping, bouncing, squeaking shoe gets murdered. And so from here on out, we know the stakes, that if any bad, villainous cartoon crosses the judge, they will be dipped into this dip and murdered. And it's scary. So, like, there's legitimate stakes to this movie. You don't want to see a cartoon get dipped again. Yes. I mean, especially, you know, Roger, if, if Roger's innocent, and at this point, that's kind of still up in the air. Yeah. Okay, so... uh we go back to Eddie's office. Eddie's kind of taken in the crime scene. He's, I guess, unofficially the uh, detective investigating the murder of Marvin Acme at this point. And when he goes back to his office, first he, let's see, he's going to run into two cartoon characters. First, or secondly, it'll be Roger. But first, he runs into Baby Herman. And this is where we get one of the funniest scenes in the movie where you realize what Baby Herman's actually like when he's not in a movie. Which is, is very... Um... I mean, vulgar to the point of being vulgar that you could be in a PG-rated movie. <laughs> yeah, he's smoking a cigar, calls it his stogie. He's got like a, a really thick, almost Bronx accent. He's like a New York gruff guy. 
and at one point Eddie Valiant's like, I thought you were three years old or something like that. And this is where the line I talked about earlier where baby Herman says, yeah, that's my problem. I got a 50 year old lust and a three year old dinky. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, I, I think that at that time, it it would have gone over a lot of kids' heads. But today's kids are a little bit more apt to, to understand things. And I'm pretty sure a lot of them would get that joke. <laughs> yeah, that is not a line you'd hear in like Mary Poppins. No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Anyway, so, so baby Herman tips him off. He's like, you know, Roger's my friend. He ain't gonna kill nobody. Like, you, you want to solve this crime, look for the will. I know Marvin Acme had a will, and he was going to leave all Toontown to the residents of Toontown when he died. So look for that will, and you'll solve this crime. Someone's trying to get around that will. So off the bat, right off the bat, he gives Eddie a good tip. Um, yes, and for the life of me right now, I cannot remember what, what that next part is. <laughs> well, this is where we meet Roger. Yeah. There's... Well, yes. Yeah, okay, there's not there's no other part. We go into Eddie's office and this is where Roger is hiding because Roger Rabbit knows he's in trouble. Someone framed him for murder. The weasels, the judge are after him, and Roger's like, Please, please, look after me, help me, solve this case, Eddie. And Eddie, of course, still hates Toons. He's never gonna like Toons at any point until the end of the movie. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um and I mean he even, you know, he asked Roger if he told anyone else that he was here and Roger's like, "Well, you know, I had to ask this person where your office was and I asked this person where your office was." And then, you know, Eddie's like, "Well, everybody knows that you're here now." Yeah, Roger is not the ideal defendant. He's in trouble. He's telling everybody where he is. He's running around just across town making a um, causing nuisance. Uh, although we learn here that uh and he's like, did you kill this guy, Marvin Valiant? And Roger's like, me? I could never kill anybody. My only purpose in life is to make people laugh. That's what I do. I could never hurt anybody. And Eddie's like, well, you must have been pissed at your wife for cheating on you. And he's like, no, I just wrote her a love letter to say how much I love her still. So Eddie doesn't really understand this. But the crux of the scene is Roger, as a joke, is going to handcuff himself to Eddie. And Eddie's going to tell him, I don't have any keys for those handcuffs, you moron. Now we're handcuffed together. And this is right when the weasels show up to arrest Roger. Yes. Um, so I believe this is when they go They go to the bar. Well, yeah. First, there's a big struggle in the office where the weasels are trying to find Eddie, but Eddie's handcuffed to Roger. So he has to hide Roger down in the dishwashing detergent. He's washing dishes. Yes. Yeah. And then we go to the bar. So Eddie barely gets out of there with Roger's life because the weasels know Roger's around. They're sniffing for him. They can't find him. So Eddie smuggles Roger Rabbit over to his bar in his coat. Yes, which leads to probably one of the best scenes in the movie. So he takes Roger Rabbit to the bar. He tries to hand to use a hacksaw off the handcuffs that Roger's put on them. And we learn that Roger can just pull his arm out of the handcuff anytime he wants. And Eddie's like wait a minute, you could have pulled your hand out of that handcuff that entire time? And Roger's like, no, only when it's funny. <laughs> Which... <laughs> because, of course, being a tune. Of course, he loves the humor. And, uh, yeah, so this is all going to culminate. I'm kind of looking at my notes here where uh, I think he leaves Roger at the bar with his girlfriend, Dolores. He says, just stay here, lay low, don't cause any trouble. Eddie goes back to his office. Jessica Rabbit's there, and she protests her innocence as well. This is where she gives her famous line, right? Yes, when when she says, I'm not bad, I was just drawn that way. Yeah, which I think is on the list of the 100 greatest movie lines of all time. That's the one from this movie. Yes, for sure. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely one that I, like, you know, 
stuck with me for a while and with that character. Now, let's talk about Jessica Rabbit for a second, just because we neglected to mention this earlier. The actress, there's actually two who portray her. Now, you know who does her voice, right? So it would be Kathleen Turner, who worked with Robert Zemeckis in Romancing the Stone. Yep, absolutely. So Kathleen Turner, uncredited in this role, one of the sexiest actresses of her era, always in these really steaming hot R-rated movies, had a really sultry voice, perfect for Jessica Rabbit. And then the singer for when Jessica Rabbit sings, that's not uh, Kathleen Turner. I think that's Amy Irving, who you may know from Carrie and other movies. She's uh, She was a, a very famous actress in the late 80s. She does the singing voice. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah, I actually never knew knew that part. I did know Kathleen Turner because her voice is, is kind of unmistakable. Yeah. But anyway, Jessica Rabbit pays Eddie off and says, you know, I didn't kill Marvin Acme. Roger didn't kill him either. I will pay you to find out who did it. So now it is a real whodunit case. Eddie's really trying to find who was the one that killed Marvin Acme. And this is where we learn the plot detail that, you know, there's that will that Marvin Acme had that said if he died, all the Toontown goes to the Toons. But since we can't find the will, there was an auction. It turns out this company called Cloverleaf bought Toontown at midnight tonight. If we don't have that will, then Cloverleaf will inherit Toontown. So that's the plot. Yes, yes, essentially. Okay, now we go back to the bar where Roger's been supposedly hiding out under, you know, on the lamb. And this is where we get the scene that you like. So it kind of explained this one. Yes. So, um, you know, Eddie told Roger to lay low, but Roger being Roger can't lay low. And so he has this record playing with very upbeat music and, and kind of has the, the bar all like raucous and singing along and all of that. Yeah, Roger. Yeah, Roger cannot leave well enough alone. He could not hide. He's putting on a big show. Eddie walks in the bar, sees this, says, you idiot, you're supposed to be hiding. They're trying to kill you, you moron. And just like that, I believe, he rushes Eddie or he, he rushes Roger into the back of the bar right when the weasels and Judge Doom show up. And this is probably the big standout scene in this movie. Yes, for sure. Um, because I, I would say that, that this, that that part of the scene is probably one of the creepiest, like, judge doom lines in the movie because it's the bar goes completely silent when they walk in and judge doom just says i'm looking for a murderer yeah (laughs) and and it's just it's just super creepy it's just one line and then it's just silence um and so you know then he proceeds to start looking for roger yeah so roger is being hidden in the back this bar is again we're in 1947 the bar has a hidden room in the back for when it was a speakeasy 15 years ago so roger and eddie are hiding back there but the judge knows roger's in here somewhere and he's snooping around the bar and asking and and nobody in there will sell roger out even though the judge is offering i think what five thousand dollars as a reward yes so like if a hundred dollars was a lot five thousand dollars is really a lot of money um and i also think that it's funny and again something that you know not everybody would get if they're not familiar with that movie but um they uh roger had made a comment in the back saying angelo wouldn't sell me out and then of course this character angelo in the bar is the one that judge doom goes over to and he says yeah i saw a rabbit he was right here in this bar and then, you know, Judge Doom looks like, oh, really? And he puts his arm up around nothing and says, hey, it's my friend Harvey, <laughs> which is a movie about an invisible rabbit. 
I actually didn't catch that joke. That's good. I didn't know that. Thank you for pointing that one out. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's probably one that, that, you know, not everybody got, but, um, but yeah, so there's that. And then, you know, Judge Doom realizes that he's just messing around. Um, and then he proceeds to go into like, Hey, no tune can resist shaving a haircut. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is a great scene. What's by far my favorite laugh in this movie that the, that uh, Roger knows none of the humans out there are going to sell him out because he made them laugh. And if you make someone laugh, then they love you, which is the kind of the message of this movie. But the judge is like, no one has to sell out Roger. I will make him come out. And he starts doing shave and a haircut. Now, you may not, if you're younger, you may not know that term. Uh, that is a very old-timey joke. It's a cartoony thing. It's a knock, specific knock. Now, I can't knock here on the podcast. You probably won't hear it, but it's dunt, 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 dunt. And then the other person's supposed to respond, dunt, dunt. And it really stands for an old, it's an old cartoony thing, shave and a haircut. And the other person says two bits. It's just an old timey yeah. thing. So the judge knows if he does the first part of that knock, Roger, as a tune, is obligated to finish the knock. So he starts knocking, dunt, 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 dunt all over the bar and it's the greatest scene of of eddie valiant looking at roger trying to resist doing two bits and he can't roger's going insane well and i think what's funny about that is because before he actually turns back and looks at roger i think he like naively believes oh like this isn't gonna get him like what why would this make him you know do anything and then he looks back at him and roger's like fighting the urge <laughs> to do it <laughs> I just love that. I think that's so clever. That's such a neat little plot device. But yeah, you know what's going to happen. Pretty soon, the judge knocks on the right wall, does dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, and Roger just can't resist. He bursts out, gets into his big jazz hand stance, and says, two bits. And that's that. Just like that, he's caught. Yep. Yep. He he couldn't help himself. And, you know, there he finds himself caught by the judge and potentially facing the dip. Yeah, so this is the scene where Roger is caught, the judge grabs him around the ears, the weasels all surround him with knives and guns, and this is Roger Rabbit's last stand. He's going to be dipped. It's all over. Yes, um, and, you know, it, it looks it looks like it's it's not going to be a good situation for him, but then, of course, he uses the uh, whole tuned mentality to his advantage here. <laughs> yeah, this is how, how we talked about it earlier, how Roger has one weakness. Well, two, I guess, if the shave and the haircut's another weakness. But <laughs> the first one is that Roger cannot handle his alcohol. So the judge is all ready to dip Roger and murder him on the spot, judge, jury, and executioner for the crime of killing Marvin Acme. But uh, Eddie, our private eye, says, why don't we give him a last request? And Christine, what would that last request be? Um, he said that Roger would like to have a drink. <laughs> yes. And Roger says, no, I don't want a drink. And so he and Eddie start arguing. And I, I love this little interplay where <laughs> Roger says, no. And he's like, yes, you want one. Roger's like, no, I don't want a drink. And so Eddie just changes his logic. Yes. you're No, or, no Eddie says, no, yeah, that's right. You don't want one. And, and Roger's like, yes, I do. And so he basically mind fucks him. And so <laughs> Roger ends up taking the drink. And what happens, predictably? Um, then, then, you know, Roger hulks out like, like he did previously and is able to get out of the situation. Yes. The, the, he turns into a steam whistle, escapes the judge, and we actually get a really technically uh, complicated scene here where Eddie, on the way out of the bar, has to fight all the weasels. Now, this is the first time in the movie I really thought that was that must have been a challenging scene to film. 
Right, exactly. Because, I mean, he's essentially hitting the weasels like you would hit a person in the bar with, you know, chairs and, and punching them and everything else like that. Yeah, and I, I've seen on the DVD they have some of the test footage of how they've recorded this. Like, they didn't have the animation drawn in there yet, but they had all these giant rubber puppets standing in. So, like, Bob Hoskins is fighting these rubber puppets and yelling at them and stuff, and it looks really goofy. But then you see the finished product later. It's really cool. This is a great fight scene. It's like a classic barroom brawl. It, it is. And, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I find this movie to be so great is to be able to do that with the, you know, the, the live action and then, you know, hitting the cartoons and it looks so seamless. Um, it's just fantastic. Yeah. And speaking of live actions interacting with cartoons, we're going to get what I think is is a really amazing sequence coming up here where Eddie and Roger run outside of the bar to escape the judge. They go into the judge's paddy wagon, and in the back of the paddy wagon is another major character. Now, who's this major character they're going to discover? So this major character is Benny, who is a Toon taxi cab. Yeah, a Toon taxi cab who has been arrested for driving on a sidewalk, and apparently Roger knows him. So Benny says, hop in, I'll drive you guys away to safety. So we're going to get a chase scene here of a human, Bob Hoskins, sitting in an animated cab being pursued by a real vehicle being driven by animated weasels. So it's a really it's a really chaotic scene with a lot of human and, and animated parts being uh, moving around all at once. And again, you probably don't realize how tricky it is until you just watch it. I'm like, wow, this scene must have been a hell of a lot of work to pull off. I, I would certainly think so. Um, and I mean, like, I, I really like the fact that they did the interplay of having a real person in a cartoon cab and then cartoons in a real vehicle. It, it's just, I, I don't know. I think it made for a really interesting dynamic. Yeah. And again, if people have been to Disneyland, again, the minute this movie opened, it was a new par part of Disneyland. They opened Toontown. It's in the back. I will re regret to say it's the part of Disneyland I never go to when I'm there. Have you been to Disneyland? I have not. Yeah, Toontown's in the back, and it's like a lot of little kid rides, and it never really became as big or beloved as like Star Wars Land and stuff like that. Like, it's kind of hanging back there. But if you go there, it's all Benny the Cab and this red line trolley. It's kind of cool. It's very much like this movie. But, yeah, the Benny is the star attraction, this animated cab, and he's really cool in this movie how they animate Bob Hoskins sitting in him. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so Benny gets them to safety, uh, and we're going to have a scene here where Roger and Eddie are sitting in a movie theater, just kind of trying to laying low until some of the heat goes down. And this is where we learn Eddie's tragic story about how a tune killed his brother. I think we get the entire story here. Yeah, I believe so, because he, uh, you know, he gets into specifically describing the tune, um, you know, how he says that. Uh, you know, he was there when it happened and that the the tune, you know, the tune guy just stood over him and had these glowing red eyes and this really high pitched squeaky voice. Mm -hmm. And Roger is terrified by the story. We learned this. Yeah, this red eyed tune killed Eddie's brother many years ago. And Roger just breaks down in tears. He feels horrible. He's like, that's why you hate me so much. Now, I do have to point out Roger Rabbit as a character is kind of interesting because He's not especially likable in the movie. Did you catch that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's especially for being, I, I mean, what I would kind of call like a, a protagonist. It, it's kind of weird kind of what, what they did to him. It's an interesting character choice because the number one thing about Roger Rabbit as a character is he is irritating. 
He's supposed to annoy you. So it's really interesting. Like he's the star of the movie. He's not like beloved Mickey Mouse. In fact, I remember reading somewhere that they made almost no tie-in action figures or toys out of this movie, which which is the weirdest thing. Like they kind of knew their main character was irritating, and it's not a kids' movie, and it's kind of dark. And they had almost no toys based on this movie, which is bizarre. Right. I mean, especially for something that it is kind of, like, as I always say, kind of a kid's movie. But at the same time, I don't know if maybe it was because they realized at the time that, like, it wasn't really a kid's movie and didn't want to have toys to, you know, get get more kids seeing it because it was so different. <laughs> yeah. And it just I'm thinking about that even more now, like. When has Disney ever shown restraint and not had tie-ins and merchandise with their movie? Right, that's not something that Disney does. <laughs> yeah, so maybe maybe this, is, this answers our question right from the start. This was such a huge movie, such a technical accomplishment. Again, Tom Hanks called it the most complicated movie ever made. It won all sorts of visual awards, but nobody ever talks about it anymore. Maybe that's why, because Disney never merchandised it. It was just a one-off. That was it. There was no sequel. I heard it, although by the time this episode is released, there might be a sequel. I heard they're working on one at the moment, but there was never a sequel. There was no toys. You just have that forgotten corner of Disneyland, and that's really it. Yeah, it it is very unusual. Um, but I mean, like, you know, maybe they could have made some Roger Rabbit toys. But as for some of the other characters, I'm, I'm not sure how how a Jessica Rabbit doll would have gone over with the with the, the, the kids. You know, <laughs> you don't think the parents of America were ready for a Jessica Rabbit figure? Um, I mean, maybe the parents were, but I'm not sure <laughs> if they would have wanted to give it to their kids. Yeah, dad's dad's uh, with the Jessica Rabbit toys in the bathroom. He'll be there for a while. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, so perhaps the Jessica Grabbit figure did not quite uh, factor into anybody's merchandising plans. No, no. Maybe maybe there's a, a different toy industry that could have profited off of that, but not, not for kids. Yeah, but anyway, to go back to the theater scene, this is where Roger, who, again, is just irritating. He's not likable. He's funny and goofy, but you don't really like him at any point in this movie. He's like, oh, that's why you hate me so much, Eddie, because a toon killed your brother. If I was you, I would hate all toons, too. And he starts crying. He's like, boo-hoo-hoo. So he actually understands why Eddie hates him so much. Oh, yeah. I mean, he he definitely at, at that point um, relates. And I just I find it so interesting that he that, like expressed that, I, I guess, almost a level of humanity, which is, is unusual for a tune. Yeah, he's he's trying to be well developed, which tunes by necessity are not well developed characters, although admittedly, Jessica Rabbit is well developed. <laughs> yes, she she is definitely well developed. OK, so. This is the part of my notes where we have about 20 minutes of detective stuff where Eddie learns stuff like who's scamming who, who bought what. And I just wrote in my notes, detective shit, detective shit, will shit. Like, I don't care because all we have to do is get Eddie into Toontown for the last half hour of the movie. Yes. I mean, that's really all that that part is. And it's, I, I wouldn't say that it's an, a part of the movie that I find particularly memorable, you know, not until the point that he gets into Toontown, because there's some some interesting stuff in there for sure. OK, so here we go. If you want to see a special effects showcase, watch the last half hour of this movie when Eddie, let's see, Roger Rabbit gets kidnapped. He gets driven off in a car. Eddie has to chase him into Toontown. And now we're going to get. Eddie entering Toontown, where he's the only human character for the entire rest of the movie, basically. 
And yeah, there's some really uh, cool stuff here. Although I do have to point out, there's a tunnel that connects the real world with Toontown that he has to drive through. Did you catch that's the exact same tunnel from the Back to the Future movies? No, I didn't catch that. Yeah, it's a very distinct tunnel in L.A. I forget where it is, but that's the one where they go through it in the hoverboard in Back to the Future 2. Where, okay. Where he's chasing. So Robert Zemeckis knew that, that tunnel real well. It's a very distinct, iconic tunnel. Just look for it, and you're like, oh, that's the Back to the Future tunnel. Anyway, it's the entrance to Toontown. Which, I mean, sure, that, that makes as much sense as anything. Use the Back <laughs> to the Future tunnel. So before Eddie goes into Toontown to solve this crime and save Roger at the end, he has to pull out, get rid of his real gun. He's got a real gun, but real guns can't hurt cartoons or can't hurt tunes. So he pulls out his Yosemite Sam cartoon gun. With, uh, with talking smart bullets. <laughs> yeah. I mean, kind of smart. His bullets are basically little cowboys that can follow things. It's like, and again, it's cartoon logic. Once we get into Toontown, all logic is out of the, out, out the door. It's just cartoon logic. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, even in the scene with um with him falling, um, you know, where he's falling through the air, it, when he when he first gets into Toontown, I think is when that happens, and he uh, comes across Tweety Bird, and is hanging on to this like uh you know flagpole thing, and Tweety Bird comes along and says, "Oh, I see piggies," and you know does the classic you know pulling off his fingers until there's no fingers left. And then Tweety's like, oh, no, I ran out of piggies. Yeah. Okay. So when we first get into Toontown, I think I read some trivia here. It's just miles and miles of animation and weird, famous cartoon characters. And Eddie's driving his car, his real car, into Toontown. But I think I read somewhere that it's all just recycled Disney animations. So you're seeing the actual cells and the actual animation from all these historic, famous uh, animated movies. It's kind of cool if you know your history. Oh, yeah. I, I had not read that, but I wouldn't be surprised because they kind of threw so many different things in there. I think, you know, maybe one of the only things that wasn't necessarily recycled is uh, there was a, a piece where there was Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse um, as, as he was falling. And they were specifically talking to, you know, Eddie. Yeah, that that's specific. Let's see, in the scene where he first drives in, I think I caught Pete's Dragon in there. I saw Song of the South. There's lots. Again, just if you're an animated Disney fan, go watch that scene. But yeah, then he ends up with Mickey Mouse, uh, Bugs Bunny, Tweety Bird. It's just chaos. Just It's it's hard to describe the scene. Just <laughs> cartoon chaos, sight gags, Eddie running into walls, Eddie falling down an elevator shaft, Droopy Dog is there. Who else am I forgetting? Um, those are the ones that I could think of off the top of my head. And I think it's important to note, too, that like since he's in Toontown, things that happen to him that if it was the real world where he'd probably be dead, he's not because he's in Toontown. So it, it kind of bends the rules a little bit. Yeah, yeah our whole uh, theology is getting weird here where <laughs> tunes can't be killed, but humans can. But when a human is in Toontown, they become a tune. Is that how it works? It, it seems to work that way, even though he, you know, he obviously doesn't look animated, but essentially the physics work the same way as they would for tunes. Yes. <laughs> okay, so uh, long story short, he ends up finding Jessica Rabbit. They team up. They get in Benny the Cab. They know where Roger Rabbit's located. He's located at the Acme Studios on the other side of town. There's like a, it's like a big deadline tonight. If they get there by midnight and nobody has the copy of the will, then... Uh, Toontown gets handed over to this Cloverleaf Corporation, which we will find out later is, ah, we'll get to that when we get to that. But really, we're at the end of the movie here, because now they're going to go chasing after Roger Rabbit. The judge catches them, 
and they get pulled into Acme Studios. And this is really the last 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah, so this is when you find out that, you know, Judge Doom is essentially behind all of this, um, that he is the sole shareholder of this Cloverleaf Industries and says that he wants to destroy Toontown um, with this machine that is full of dip. Yeah, this is the savage end in the movie that the judge hates all Toons. He wants to destroy Toontown. He's going to inherit Toontown tonight. He's created this monstrosity of a machine that can spray dip at like, uh, there's like 5,000 gallons. He's going to drive it through town, kill all the Toons, murder them tonight, and nobody can stop him. So we just they just wait in this warehouse with Eddie and uh, Roger and Jessica until midnight, and then his plans will all come through fruition. And he wants to, what, what is his plan? He's going to destroy Toontown and build a freeway, right? Yes, he wants to build a freeway. Now, it's funny. They said, he says, uh, I want to build this freeway that cuts through Toontown behind Hollywood and goes north all the way to Pasadena, which I think I read. You don't know this. You're not from L.A., but I am. That is the 110 freeway. That's an actual freeway. So he's describing what L.A. is like now. So in real life, Judge Doom actually won. (laughs) Yes, the the movie just made it look like everything was fine, but he really uh, was able to accomplish what he set out to do. Yeah, if you want to make this movie a little darker, just let me point out Judge Doom 1, there's no more Toontown, and we do have that freeway, so way to go, villains. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Roger has a gun. Roger pulls out a gun and tries to save everybody here, and it all goes to chaos. I kind of forget what happens here. It ends up with, uh... oh, Roger gets the bricks dumped on his head. Yes, yes. He gets the bricks dumped on his head, and then um, then he ends up getting tied up with, with Jessica Rabbit. Jessica and Roger are tied up on a little hook, and Jed, the judge points the dip gun right at them. He's going to spray them and kill them. And really, the only person left that can save them is Eddie, the private eye. The judge has left the scene. He's left the room. And it's just the five weasels that are surrounding Eddie. And this is where we get a miraculous plan because the judge has warned the weasels, his little sidekicks all throughout the movie, that there's one thing they can't do. Now, Christine, what is the one problem weasels have? Um, What ends up happening is if the weasels laugh too hard, they will die. Yeah, apparently. Is this a common trope in the animal kingdom? I've never heard this before. I, I have not. I mean, I suspect that maybe it has some kind of tie back to the fact that he mentioned he couldn't have hyenas because hyenas are known for laughing. Um, so maybe for some reason that that passes on to the weasels. Yeah, apparently. So, yeah, the judge has left his weasel henchman in charge to against a James Bond strategy. Oh, I'm going to kill these people. I'll just leave the room and assume that my plan goes into fruition. But so Eddie decides he's going to make these weasels laugh until they die because the judges warned them, stop laughing so hard you're going to die. So Eddie, now this must have been a fun scene for Bob Hoskins. I don't think he does scenes like this in movies much. Does an entire song and dance number with slapstick in an attempt to kill the weasels. Yes, which is, you know, it's really some of the the finest acting that Bob Hoskins does in the movie because it's just all like, Pratt falls and you know doing this song and of course the the weasels find this to be hilarious and kind of one by one you see these little angel weasels floating up out of their bodies yeah so once again the theology of toontown is put to question i was told that toons cannot die yet we figure out two ways to kill toons in this movie dip them or make them laugh until they turn into angels yes <laughs> so 
I disagree with the theology of the Toon world. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems kind of inconsistent, but it, it's it's Toontown, so you know, I guess they can they can make up different rules if they want to. <laughs> Yeah, so Eddie, it's a great, great bit. He's smashing plates over his head, getting hit in the face with a rake, juggling bombs. They drop on his head, gets electrocuted. And again, this is what cartoon characters love. They're just laughing at this. And all the weasels die, so Eddie has saved the day. And he's about to free Jessica and Roger, but now the judge shows up again. And now we get the big one-on-one showdown with Eddie and the judge, where we learn a very crucial detail we were not aware of up until this point in the movie. Yes. So Eddie essentially fights Judge Doom and uh, it is a lot harder to deal with with, than the weasels are. And then finally, Eddie gets into a situation where he's able to trap Judge Doom's foot under a steamroller. (laughs) Yeah, I love how they do this, by the way. There's a a big vat of Acme glue, which, again, if you ever watch the Roadrunner and Coyote, all the Acme stuff was the the Coyote all be sending away for this Acme stuff. It's just glue that if you put your hand in, it sticks you to anything. The judge gets his his fist stuck in the Acme glue, then his foot, and then he accidentally sticks himself to a steamroller. And so the steamroller just rolls right over him, which ostensibly should kill the judge. But it doesn't because there's a secret about the judge we didn't know. It, it again this is one of the most surprising kind of scary creepy things in the movie is that you know the steamroller rolls over him it's like okay he's dead and then all of a sudden this flat body starts to move yeah this is really a creepy effect this is like a tim burton effect yeah yeah i never thought of that but it it is very tim burton um you know he he starts to move and then he kind of starts getting up off of the floor and then popping back into form and all of a sudden you realize oh my gosh he's a tune the judge is a tune and not only that he's a self-loathing tune who is here to kill all other tunes and wipe out toontown he's just wearing a human mask that's all he is and so, yeah, so the judge becomes a tune. He reaches his final form, and all of a sudden, you knew it was coming. The eyes pop out, and they're red, and his voice gets all high and squeaky. And it's a really terrifying effect, and Eddie realizes, oh, my God, this is the tune that killed my brother. Yes. Um, so, it's. I mean, it, 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 I wouldn't say that it was the most surprising <laughs> thing in the end, uh, because you kind of assumed that that might be coming. But, uh, but yes, it's very scary. And you can see Eddie is just like, oh, my gosh, you know, he finally finds this this tune. Yeah. And Eddie's like, how do I fight this guy? Because the judge is like in a physical combat with him. And the judge is a tune. He's got like cartoon mallets coming out of his hand and an anvil. And at one point, a cartoon buzzsaw. And Eddie's like, I can't kill it, too. This is like a, a legitimately scary scene. It really is, um, because, I mean, he's, you know, he's doing some things that, you know, not the other tunes aren't exactly doing. Like you mentioned the buzzsaw and the anvil and in in ways like I, I had um, uh, flashbacks to um, what the heck that I, I can't think of the name of the movie. That's fine. You can edit it out. Is it but... Enter the Dragon? Are you going Bruce Lee on me? No, no, I was thinking because of the buzzsaw, I was thinking of, um, you know, the the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Oh, The Running Man. The Running Man, yes. (laughs) I was thinking of The Running Man. It was like fighting all of the characters in The Running Man at one time. 
Yeah, so Eddie's like, screw it. I can't fight the animated all five characters of the running man. How am I going to kill this guy? And in the, the melee, he sees the switch to the dip gun. Again, the, the dip gun that's going to kill all the tunes in Toontown. And Eddie happens to hit it. He's got this, uh, it's like a mallet with a extending uh, boxing glove that comes out of it, if I recall. Yes, yes, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah, the classic cartoon weapon. He uses that. He hits the on-off switch on the dip machine. The dip gun turns towards the judge and hits him. And we just get this horrific, again, I keep saying horrific, scene of the judge being doused in dip as his eyeballs go flying out of his head. He screams and he basically melts like an Evil Dead movie. Yes, it was like a, cro- a combination of the Evil Dead and like the Wicked Witch and, and the Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah, I think he even says, what a world, what a world, to kind of you can hear. Yes, it, yeah. I, I think he does, yeah. Or like Gremlins, he goes down like Stripe at the end when he gets wet or he gets the sunlight on him. Yes, for sure. Um, just, yeah, it was absolutely frightening. Yeah, again, this is not a kid's movie at all. I'm kind of shocked. Okay, I'm kind of shocked it was released as a kid's movie, and now I'm kind of not shocked there was no merchandise tie-in with, like, Happy Meals and toys. So, yeah, this is a this is a dark movie. It, it is. It's it's a dark movie. It's a very um, raunchy kind of vulgar movie in, in parts, for sure. Um, so, yeah, yeah, Mario, could you picture um, little, little Jessica Rabbit and Baby Herman uh, Happy Meal toys? Probably not. Yeah, I don't I don't know <laughs> the baby Herman was going to be a big seller with his finger, wet middle finger he's just shoved into somebody. <laughs> and they could have him like in that pose in the Happy Meal toy, just in that in that pose. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, oh, speaking of this being a dark movie, like I'm not entirely sure who the audience was for this movie. I think it was much more older people and not younger people. But I read a thing on the Internet Movie Database trivia that when Robert Zemeckis held the first screening for this, it was all 18 and 19 year old college students and like high school students. And he said they hated it. They walked out of the movie. They gave it like a terrible score. Huh. And and Robert Zemeckis's reaction. I love it. Don't change a thing. That's exactly who I want to hate this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he made no changes whatsoever after the first test screening just because he wanted it for audiences that were older. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Okay. So, and that's the end of the movie, that the judge has been killed, the tunes have been saved, and Roger and Jessica are freed, and all the tunes from outside come walking into Acme Studios, and this is where we get all the biggies we haven't seen in the movie, like Porky Pig and stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and just, like, from a plot perspective, again, definitely not, like, the reason for, you know, the, the movie. There's so much, you know, more interesting than the plot. But this is also where they find that the love note that Roger had written, that he didn't realize that he wrote it on the will for Marvin Acme, which was written in Disappearing, Reappearing Ink. Yeah, the classic Acme gag, Disappearing Ink, that will later reappear a day later. Yes. So then the Toontown is inherited by the tunes and everything as well. Yeah, let's see. I'm trying to name all the tunes we see at the end. We see This is where we see Marvin the Martian. We see Sylvester the Cat, Porky Pig. I saw Foghorn Leghorn in there. Uh, oh, Woody Woodpecker's in here. Just, I mean, I guess it must have been astounding. All the rights they had to get for this movie for like a little two-second scene. Like it's it's satisfying in a way that they were able to do that, but I can I can really imagine what went into getting those rights because it is just so many different characters just throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and I felt a little cheated. There wasn't a single Smurf anywhere in there. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, because I'm looking at the uh, 
uh, Tom and Jerry were there, um, Mighty Mouse, uh, even Superman, according to what I have here. Yeah, I read it. I read they were trying to get Superman. Did they actually get him? I think so, um, from what I'm seeing, and Casper the Friendly Ghost as well, of, like, all the things. Now, why, out of all the super friends, why only Superman? What, they, what Batman wouldn't show up? Batman wasn't available that day? I guess Batman must have been doing something else. <laughs> no Apache chief showing up back there? All right, now I'm going obscure. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there was one more thing about getting the cartoon rights. I forgot that I, I to mention this. That Now, I don't know all the studio names. I don't know all the animators. I know some animators had a problem with this movie. Some loved it. It's all over the chart. But one of the things was that if you had competing characters from the different studios, one of the clauses in the contract was they had to have equal camera time. Did you read that? No, I didn't see that. Yeah, it was all political. So, like, if you had Daffy Duck and you had Donald Duck, they had to have the approximately same amount of screen time. So that's why they came up with the piano scene where they're playing the piano together. And the studios also argued, well, one of them can't be a better piano player than the other one because they had to be equals. So that's why it's a dueling piano scene. It's all, it was, like, all political. Oh, wow. That is really interesting. And it, and it comes up with Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny, too. When they're falling down, that's why they're in the same scene together, because so they would get equal camera time in that exact scene for that exact amount of time. I guess it, it really makes sense why they did it the way that they did. Yeah, so that's why I'm amazed they got as many rights to these characters if they did as they did if the studios are being that big of a bitch about it. Right. I mean, it would, again, like going back to back then versus today, I think it would be so much harder today. I mean, even with, you know, like Marvel and all the controversy they had over Spider-Man rights and stuff like that. I mean, like, you would think that that would be easy. And it seems like it was so much easier at that time than it would be today. (laughs) Yeah. Can you imagine trying to get Bart Simpson in there, like the Family Guy characters? No, and actually, fun, fun fact, since you mentioned Bart Simpson, do you know that it was Nancy Cartwright who did the voice of the shoe that went into the dip? Oh, wow. And that, that, that was like a year before she started doing Bart Simpson. I had no idea. That's good trivia. So she's the dipped shoe. She is the dipped shoe. <laughs> so we mentioned it earlier that they there are talks for a Roger Rabbit 2, which, again, I'm shocked they never made a sequel, but I've heard in 2022 they're trying to get one out. But that'd be hilarious if you saw, like, Eric Cartman in there and... <laughs> And the South Park guys. <laughs> I could see that. I know it's something that they've been talking about for a long time. I know that at one point, and I don't think that it's recently, but at, at one point they were talking about trying to get a ghost of Eddie Valiant since Bob Hoskins has since passed away, mm-hmm. um, like to do it in digital form since they can't obviously get him in physical form. Um, but I have no idea if that would be something they still plan to do. Well, you could animate Bob Hoskins. That's the thing in the rules of this universe. You could make him a tune. Sure. You absolutely could. <laughs> I'm just now thinking of all the South Park characters. That'd be hilarious if you could work that in there. Like, hey, Roger, who's your new friend? Timmy. <laughs> that that would be pretty funny or like have a scene where kenny gets killed maybe they could put kenny into the dip next time yes. now it's a south park movie featuring roger rabbit sure <laughs> sure why not yeah so anyway that's the end of the movie all the tunes live happily ever after the control of toontown has been passed to tunes everywhere and at the end uh roger's like do you still hate me eddie do you still does nothing make you smile and eddie kisses him and everyone cheers and they all walk off in the sunset and sing and it ends with of course porky pig saying that's all folks
what is a perfect ending to a tune-based movie. Yeah, although I just realized that's not the ending. There's one more animated character who comes and taps her little magic wand and closes the movie screen. Who's that? Was 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 Tinkerbell at the end? Tinkerbell. You get Porky Pig and then Tinkerbell is the actual ending. Yeah, that's, that's pretty fantastic. Yeah, so again, just a fun little movie that, again... Without question, and I know you think I'm being hyperbole, you aren't, but my audience might if they don't know the history here, easily one of the 20 biggest movies of my lifetime. This was a massive hit, a massive technical achievement. It was the talk of the movie world that year, the talk of the Oscars. It was the Titanic of its year. It was the Avatar, the Terminator 2, the special effects movie you had to see to believe. And it's just really kind of shocking to me that I have not heard somebody talk about this movie until... I mean, it had been years. I mentioned on Facebook I was doing it on Staff Picks and had all these people come out of the woodwork and say, oh, I want to do that that movie. That's such one of my favorites. And I'm like, how come nobody mentions this? If you would have mentioned that, I would have remembered it and done it on Staff Picks. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's just, like I said, it's it's one that I know I love and I try to watch regularly. I'm not sure that my five-year-old is, is quite ready for it, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I it's just, it's a great film and um, I, I definitely understand anybody who appreciates it as much as I do. Yeah, just a fun movie and everyone should watch it again if you haven't seen it in a while. Like I said, I hadn't seen it since the 90s and I was actually kind of shocked by how little I remembered about it. Like it was like watching a new movie for me. That's I mean sometimes that's fun. Um, you know, like I said, I try and watch it every few years just because, you know, I own it and um I like I I enjoy it quite a bit. So, um yeah, it's it's just it's a great movie. Well, see, now you have to go to Disneyland and go to what should be your Mecca, the Toontown section, which if you've never been to, that's kind of a cool place. I guess that I do have to. Um, I mean, I've been to to Disney World, but as everybody knows, that is a very different place than Disneyland, other than the fact that they are both Disney. Um, So, yeah, that is that is definitely a must for me in the future. Yep. Okay, so uh, anything else you want to say about this uh, movie or the world of Jessica Rabbit-type burlesque before we sign off? <laughs> um, just if, if you have not seen the movie, um, just to know that I don't think that you can fully, like, have an expectation going into it. It's just probably not going to be meeting any kind of expectation that you have um and you know yeah jessica rabbit like i'm, I'm not afraid to say it she's a hot cartoon <laughs> yeah now okay we will end on one question here now do you think overall this is a great movie now i don't think anybody would dispute it's a great technical achievement of a movie i do know roger ebert and Sisk and gene Sisko both listed it in their top 10 movies of the year but I know, like, my wife watches the other day, and she's like, you know, that the film noir stuff, the cartoon stuff, that's not really for me. She didn't think it was an especially great movie. Like, and I know I watched it for this, but I won't watch it again probably for 20 years because, like, the detective stuff I'm not really interested in and cartoons aren't really my thing. Would you call this a great movie? Just curious. There's no wrong answer here. I think if you're basing it strictly on, like, looking at the plot, um, no. I mean, if, if you're just looking at the plot, it's, you know, it's, it's okay. You know, there's nothing special about it. But I would still call it a great movie because when you look at everything in its entirety, uh, you know, it's just fantastic. It's fun. I, I mean, I think that anybody should watch it at least once. Um, but I can understand people that wouldn't watch it, you know, very often because you know you've seen it 
it, it takes it may take a little while before you really find the urge to want to to see it again and kind of remember the things that you loved about it. Yeah, I think that's a very fair answer. And it, you know, I might be understating how beloved this movie is, just because it's not one that I watch all the time. But like, I'll, this uh, say something a little personal about myself here is I work for this company. We all work remote. I'm a computer programmer. And every day for work, we have a, a team call where we get together for half an hour in the afternoon. And uh, one of the things that I do on my Zoom background every day is I always put a movie behind me. And it's, I turn it into a movie contest to see who can guess my movie. Just something to make meetings more interesting. And this morning, actually, I did Who Framed Roger Rabbit as my movie. Just because I was curious if people would be able to identify it. I didn't put a picture of Roger Rabbit or, any, or Jessica. It was just Bob Hoskins in his hat holding a drink. And I was like, that was my background. I'm like, I want to see who will get that. And sometimes people get my movie. Sometimes they don't. Like every single damn person on my team got that movie instantly. They saw Bob Hoskins with his hat. They're like, oh, that's Roger Rabbit. That's one of my favorites. It's like, out of all the movies I've done in a year and a half, that was the one that every single person on my team knew instantly. So I may be underselling how beloved this movie is. Yeah, I mean, that's true, um, because a lot of people know it. I mean, I'd say most people probably have seen it when they were a kid at some point, which, you know, again, not a kid's movie, but still, we we just all did. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not something that I could watch all the time. I mean, there's certainly other films like The the Princess Bride. I mean, you could tell me any day of the week, hey, you want to watch The Princess Bride? And I'll be like, yes. Um, but, but for this movie, you know, I wouldn't necessarily feel that way about it, but it's still very beloved. You know, I, I still do like to rewatch periodically. And yeah, it's just... It's something that a lot of people remember. Okay. And with that, I think we have successfully covered Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I will admit was an episode I was a little nervous about doing because I don't know this movie as well as some of the other ones I do. Like I, I had to watch it twice just to make sure I know the plot. So I think we were successful in selling it, and I'm glad we had you back on again. Yeah, absolutely. And now we got to talk about your third appearance. What? Uh, give me. Th well, uh, you did True Lies. You did uh, Roger Rabbit. What other burlesque movies are there? And are out there? And, <laughs> and you can't say Showgirls. Showgirls is cheating. Oh no! Showgirls is a terrible movie. <laughs> so yeah, not Showgirls, um, and not not even um, burlesque, which the title of the movie is burlesque, but also not a great movie. So I will have to see what else I can come up with. Um, I would also say. Um, you know, along the vein of movies that I think are really great, but are not not a lot of people like um, Secretary is a fantastic movie. If you've never seen it, okay. um, it certainly was the Fifty Shades of its time, but it does it way better. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll have to kind of look through my my movie list and see what else I have. But um, I know you have quite a few three-peat hosts, and I would love to come back and do something else fun. Yeah, just for my listeners, I love working with Christine on Staff Picks because she has a very distinct way of talking. And I always tell my guests this, that one of the hardest things to do, we don't do video on this podcast, it's all audio. So if I can tell where her sentences stop and start, then I know where to jump in, then nobody ever steps on each other's toes. When I edit her episodes, they are the easiest episodes to edit because that's the way she talks, and it's so easy to pick out our, our I mean, to keep the flow of our dialogue going without people stepping on each other's toes. And you told me once that's because you worked in radio before, right? 
I did. Um, I interned at a radio station all throughout high school, so I kind of learned it then, but I'm also a communication major in college. Um, That's what I got my degree in, so I just have a lot of experience with knowing how to have a conversation in that way. Excellent. Yeah, no, you're a joy to work with, and I want to have you back again, so your homework is now go off and find a third movie for us to talk about. And my homework, as always, is I'm going to take my Jessica Rabbit action figure and go play with it in private. (laughs) As you should. Okay. Once again, thank you for listening, everybody. My name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Shave and a haircut. Two bits. See you later. Bye. Hold still, will ya? Does this help? Yeah, thanks. Do you mean to tell me that you could have taken your hand out of that cuff at any time? No, not at any time. Only when it was funny.